Let's pray. Father God, as stated before, there is so much to be thankful for, Lord. In reading these scriptures, Father, it's just so reminding, Lord, that your scriptures are something that we are just so, so, so thankful for, Lord. I thank you for these scriptures. I thank you for the encouragement that they bring. And I pray, Lord, that you will open up hearts and minds, Lord, whether it's people here, Lord, listening online, Lord, people who are not able to attend, Father, people who are not feeling well, Lord. I pray for everybody, Lord. I pray for all of your people, Lord, on this day, that their hearts and minds would be opened, that they would receive the nourishment of your word today, Father. May you be with the preaching today, Father. May it be your words, Lord, that go forth. May it be your message that goes forth and transforms hearts, Father. And we're thankful, and it's in the name of Christ that we're able to pray these things. Amen. Brothers and sisters, in reading Psalm 46, as I just did, the message is already so clear. It is so clear, in fact, that I can almost spend the next 45 minutes reading and rereading this scripture to you over and over again. For its message and purpose is just so applicable to our present situation, isn't it? If you really take the time to go through that psalm and look at what's being said, so much uh, parallels can be drawn into kind of uh, a lot of our current circumstances. And that's one of the reasons I uh, chose this psalm. As we sit outside, as we sit outdoors right now, because of a global pandemic that's going on, that has also now spiraled into a political conflict, bringing turmoil to our country and the world at large, it's hard to not read this psalm in light of the current state of our world and already see a lot of these parallels between the context of Psalm 46 and our current situation. And so over the next two weeks, I plan, Lord willing, to preach on two relevant psalms, both being similar in nature and both being applicable to our current circumstances. I will preach on uh, Psalm 46 today, and Lord willing, will preach on Psalm 47 next week. Each of these two psalms are both sequential and interconnected to one another, each having direct applications to what we as a church are experiencing today. Both Psalm 46 and Psalm 47 point the people of God toward the reality of the presence and power of God amongst his people, especially during times of national and political turmoil. And as you can already see by reading through Psalm 46, this psalm really does apply to our current state and situation. Our nation and world appear to be spiraling out of control into the hands of the ungodly. However, I praise God for these times, and I hope that you do too, because it is during these times, these times of difficulty, that the people of God are reminded that this world is marred by sin. And it reminds us of our need to patiently and anxiously await the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I'm often perplexed by those who claim to be Christians, but who also become confused and or dismayed when the world falls into troubles. For it would seem that many of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are somewhat confused about what the Scriptures teach we should expect in this world. Scripture is clear on this matter. In this life, we will have troubles. In fact, the more that 
the world and the nation move away from a biblical worldview, the more that we're going to see a movement towards man-made systems in an attempt to bring about stability and continuity in the increasingly secular environments. Now, the pulpit is no place for politics. I've said that in the past, and I want to make that very clear again right now. But it is important to understand a very prominent theme in our society today and why this theme is taking place. As many of you know, there's a, been a resurgence of socialistic ideals throughout the world and unfortunately throughout our country. And for those of you who know your history, you know that there have been many times where leaders and people groups have gathered and attempted to implement socialistic principles into a society, but all to no avail. Utopian socialism, Marxism, communism, each one has failed miserably. But stepping back from our political perspectives, I want to ask you, as believers in Christ, have you ever stopped to think why the socialist philosophy is so prominent? Why it always fails? But also why those who have tried it and those who follow after them only try again in the future? Why would people continually return to such a system if it continuously fails? What does it seem to offer that is so appealing to people? Well, at its core, if you really think about it, it's really a pretty good idea. Hand over the power to centralized leaders, let them make the big decisions, and everybody else can live with essentially the same amount of stuff. We'll all just share equally, right? Sounds really easy. Clearly, it's more complicated than that, but you, you, you get the understanding, right? You get the idea about why this would be so appealing. Really, the theme of socialistic ideals is a testament to man's desire for things like fairness, control, and stability. In fact, most philosophies and religions outside of Christianity are all attempts to replace that which is lost outside of a biblical worldview. However, in the midst of these philosophies or religions or theories, there is one problem, one very important problem that is gravely overlooked. That is sin. Sin. Sin has corrupted, sin has distorted, Leaders lead in selfish ambition. Man does not share as he ought. Ultimately, people look to man-made politics, religions, and systems as a way of saving, as a way of trying to gain that which is here on earth. Because remember, brothers and sisters, those outside of Christ, this is all that they have. What else is there to hope in other than trying to create heaven here on earth if there is no eternity? Or if the eternity that waits for you is one outside of Christ? People are going to try and create their utopias here. This is why utopianism is so popular in secular environments and why utopianism should have no place within Christianity for Christ is the only true utopia. Ultimately, it's an epistemological and worldview issue. I hope that you understand what I, what I mean. I hope you understand what I'm saying about the connection between socialistic and secular ideals and why they lead to a lack of God. I think it's important that you see that connection. And why those who reject God would strive for things like utopias, or socialism, or communism. If you take away God, and people will look to fallen man to create their heaven on earth. They will look to man for safety and security. They will look to man for the answers. They will look to man, again, for their heaven here on earth. They will trust in man-made systems rather than trusting in God. 
This is why, again, Christians must remember that this earth is not our home. This is not the, the end-all for believers in Christ. This is not the final solution. This is, this is not the, 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 the end of, of what Christ has for us, right? There, there, there was a beginning to it in the garden, and God uh, allowed sin to come in and has distorted that. We're waiting for the consummation of those things. It's easy to forget that, brothers and sisters. That's why I'm emphasizing this point. It's really easy to forget that there's so much more than to just this life, because this life is all that we know, and it's in faith that we have to trust in God for what He promises after this life. Now, of course, to be clear, God gives good things to His people here on earth. Right? This isn't to be pessimistic. God still gives many good things, and there is much good uh, still given here on the earth, and much good that we still have to look forward to here on the earth. But it's important that we have a proper worldview and what we should expect from this world and how we are to deal with the events that take place in this world through a biblical, a proper biblical worldview. Like you, brothers and sisters, I have my own firm political beliefs. We all should. But we must all know that no political system is the solution to our problems today. And again, to be clear, because I have to make sure I'm being clear on this because I'm walking a bit of a a tightrope, I know. Christians should be involved in politics. That is a good thing, and it should happen. More Christians should get involved in education and perhaps teach history. I don't know. Christians should vote and stand up for what is right and godly in our society and abroad, but Christians must be careful to not blur the line between this world and the next. For again here, Scripture is clear. In this world... We will have troubles. This is a central and essential teaching in Scripture. There will be trouble in this life, but take heart, Scripture says, God is in control. This is why if we want to see an improvement in our world and society, brothers and sisters, then we should evangelize and bring others into the fold of God. If you want the world to be better, focus on that. Focus on treating people with the love and tenderness of Christ and winning them over through your gentleness and your meekness. For the expansion of God's kingdom is what will bring good to this nation. The expansion of God's kingdom. Church, our focus during this time of pandemic and political turmoil and political unrest should be on Christ. And our actions should be geared toward winning others Winning others to Christ, patiently, diligently, and gently winning others to Christ. Not merely just posting our politically charged beliefs and opinions on social media or bumper stickers. For in fact, I've never seen anyone come to Christ because of that. I'm involved in social media, many of you are, but we need to remember that nobody reads a a politically charged post, however accurate it is and uh, feels convictions to come to Christ through that. But your love and gentleness, that will win them to Christ. And we need to remember that that's what's going to make our nation in this world a better place. So if we truly want to see a change in our nation, it's only going to happen by winning more and more over into the flock of God. And so Psalm 46 gives us direct insight into what it actually looks like to live in a chaotic and broken world that has been distorted by sin, all while living in the peace, 
protection and tranquility of God while we patiently await his full consummation of all things. So let's take a little bit of time as we now look to understand some of the background and context of this psalm, and then afterwards we'll jump into looking at its meaning and applications. Psalm 46 is an empowering and uplifting psalm that encourages the people of God to hope and trust in him. Even in the most difficult of times, the people of God are to trust in their creator. In addition, the psalm directs its readers to give glory to God for what he has done and for what he will do in the future. The reader is taught three distinct concepts about God throughout this psalm. Number one, to take comfort in God when things look very bleak and threatening. We can relate to that, right? Take comfort in God. Two, to remember that God is with his people during all times, trials, and tribulations, verses four through seven. And three, to know that God is in control now and will one day be exalted throughout all the earth, verses eight through 11. Psalm 46 was a favorite psalm, uh, perhaps the favorite psalm of Martin Luther. And it was Psalm 46, in fact, that inspired him to write the famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Gives a little bit more meaning and background uh, to that hymn, right? It's said of Luther that when he heard any discouraging news, he would say in response, Come, let us sing the 46th Psalm together. What a great example that I think we can take from Martin Luther. When he gets bad news, he doesn't go to large amounts of stress and anxiety. What does he do? His response was, let us sing the psalm together. A small point, yet a very large point, church. And uh, I think it's one that is worth me taking the extra 10 seconds to say, we should do that. When we get bad news, first of all, we probably shouldn't be looking at so much news, right? There is a uh, I, I'm, I'm diverting. This is why I have a manuscript so I don't rabbit trail, but I'm rabbit trailing. On Stetson, right, the, the church there, um, uh, turn off the news and plant a garden. That's a good one, right? I, I really appreciate that one. Sometimes I don't appreciate them as much, but that one, that's a good one. I'm, I stand behind that. That's a good thing. We need to be careful not to be bombarded by those things. But when we get bad news, we should take note of, uh, of Luther, right? Let us sing the 46th Psalm together. Throughout this psalm, Psalm 46, the kingdom of God is likened to that of a mighty fortress against which the waters, and these waters in the Old Testament often representing chaos and death, these waters of chaos and death, they have no power. And the psalm looks forward to the eternal reign of God in the new earth, all while celebrating the present reign of God in this troubled world. Looking even more closely at the psalm, we see that the primary theme of verses 1 through 3 is the freedom from all fear that is able to be experienced by the people of God. Verse 1 is a statement by the psalmist uh, giving testament to the presence of God with him. He states that he has learned through his experience walking with God. Right? This is an experiential knowledge. It's how it is in the original language. It's an experiential knowledge that he has. It's not something he learned about Um, uh, through reading about, he has experienced this knowledge that God is a refuge, God is a strength, and God is a very present help during times of trouble. This isn't a concept, this was a reality to the psalmist. He had experienced this walking with the Lord. An even better term or translation uh, for uh, the term uh, very present would actually be a well-proved or tried and true help 
in trouble. Right? God has proven himself over and over and over again as a refuge and a strength and a present help in times of trouble. This all pointing to the prior experience that he had in trusting in God in times of difficulty. See, just like anything else, as we work on this skill, we build it. And as we don't work on this skill, it atrophies. Many times I think that what has happened is we have not learned to properly trust and rely upon God in difficult circumstances. And so the audience of this psalm, which would have, uh, in its direct context, been the nation of Israel, in its broader context, us as the church and everybody as the church, and the author of the psalm, which was most likely David, though there is some speculation of that, but most likely David, experienced several wars and conflicts with neighboring nations, as many of you know. And so here the psalmist is reminding the people of their previous experiences with the Lord, recalling that He is our refuge and He is our strength. He protected us and He sustained us before, and He will certainly do it again. Just remember all of those times that God brought us through all of those battles, the psalmist is reminding. And to show the gravity of his point, the author says in verse 2 that even if the earth were to give way, even if the earth were to just give way and split in two, or the mountains were to be moved into the sea, often this being a, a, a reference to death and destruction, when, when the mountains are moved into the sea, this is an image of death and chaos and, and, and destruction going around. So even if uh, death and chaos ensued all around us, we will not fear, says the psalmist. Even if we will not fear. The psalmist took tangible examples from the audi- uh, that the audience would have directly understood in order to make his point stating that even if the world itself was ripped apart into death and destruction, we, as the people of God, will not fear. Though its waters roar, though its waters foam, though destruction and turmoil were to come and surround us, though the mountains tremble at their swelling, the people of God will not fear, says the psalmist. This analogy was to put these local wars that they had been through and experienced into proper context. Displaying to the people that when measured against the person and nature of God, their current circumstances, what they were going through, paled in comparison to the strength and ability of their mighty God. It just wasn't even a comparison. That's what the psalm uh, does, is it just gives great contrast, right? Your problem is this big, even if, if it was tenfold, right? God is still God and above it. It's important to note that when the sacred poet says that we will not fear, he is not to be understood as meaning that the minds of the godly are exempt from uh, all solicitude of fear. This is an important point. To not feel any fear, brothers and sisters, when faced with great danger and chaos is unreasonable and unrealistic, maybe even a little bit crazy. We all probably had those friends growing up, right? The guy who just didn't fear anything seemed like didn't have all the screws on right in his head, right? Fear is a good thing. We, we should be afraid of uh, certain things, right? When we come across certain uh, uh, situations, right? There should be fear, right? It's a natural thing to experience it. And I think Christians uh, sometimes get caught up in, I feel afraid, therefore I must be sinning. And, and I've really come to believe that that's just not true. There is a great difference between unsensible fear and the fear while in confidence of faith. You can be afraid and also be trusting God, right? That's really what Psalm 46 is saying. What do you do with your fear? The author here in Psalm 46 displays that whatever happens, the people, are ne- uh, people of God are never to be overwhelmed 
with fear and terror. It should never come to a place where it overwhelms them. Instead, they are to gain strength and courage by being reminded of the power and presence of God. So Psalm 46 isn't saying, don't be afraid, right? There will be fear. But when you are afraid, this is what you are to do. This is where your confidence will come from. This is where your confidence will come from. So it is not a sin to be afraid, per se. It is a sin, however, to not trust in God in your fear. That's where the sin comes in. This is why Psalm 46 was written, so that when the people of God experienced fear, they knew how they should respond to that fear with reminders of God's uh, ability, with reminders of God's strength, with reminders of God's person and present. So take heart. Don't feel guilty when you're afraid. Instead, take your fear to God in faith and read scriptures like Luther did. Scriptures like Psalm 46. Again, a great example from Luther. Be reminded of the presence and power of God. Remind yourself. Read the scriptures when in fear because this is exactly why psalms like this were written. Moving into verses 4 through 7, the psalmist brings the attention of his audience to God's physical presence with his people in the midst of their tribulation. The author makes an abrupt transition from the waters of turmoil, being roaring and foaming, representing death and destruction, instantly to waters of tranquility, referring to the stream that makes glad the city of God in verse 4. This stream was most likely not literal. Sometimes it is. In this case, it most likely was not, since no actual water flowed through the temple courts in any of the Old Testament accounts. However, Ezekiel would later describe a river coming out from under the threshold of the temple in Ezekiel 47.1. And even later, in Revelation 22, John writes of a stream that will flow from the throne of God in the new creation. And this image, therefore, is a reference to God's continual presence with his people. When we look at the Old Testament understandings of how water is used, it can be uh, both in reference to great evil and death and destruction and to great good of the people of God, often in in streams. And so we see this direct contrast here uh, in Psalm 46. This is important, I think, for two reasons in light of this uh, uh, theology. This symbol is important. Number one is it displays the present reality of God with his people, his present reality. God's kingdom reigns now, and God is with his people now. That's what Psalm 46 is showing us. That's what the New Testament teaching in light of the Old Testament also shows us. Christ is currently reigning now, book of Revelation, right? And the stream of God flows throughout the current kingdom. And in light of the New Testament teachings, we see that the Psalms, such as this one, are a testament looking forward to God always being present with his people. It's always been that way. God is present with us now. He was present with his people in the Old Testament. He had always been present with his people. To an extent, he's already been in the already but not yet with them, ever since the garden. The future reality of God's presence is point number two, is it points towards uh, the full consummation So now God is fully present with us. He is here. He is our refuge now. He is our strength now. He is our protection now. But not yet fully, right? He's not fully here. If you have kids, you know, uh, it's kind of hard. You know, we're praying. Who are we praying to? God, well, where is he? He's in heaven. Where is that? I can't see it, right? Um, I think some people never make it past that sort of thinking of uh, trying to understand those things. But it's difficult to try and explain. God is here. God is in the midst of us at this very moment. But not fully. 
He completely is, but then he kind of isn't, right? Some difficult teachings there, but that's why it talks about this future reality of God's presence. Because we live in the state now of God's presence, but in the future, he will be fully present. God is currently reigning. God is currently present with his people. But God will one day fully consummate his kingdom, bringing full and complete union between himself and his people. Though the river rages with violence and hostility here on earth, the river of God, the stream of God, peacefully flows through the city of God, now and again fully in the future. And one day, John tells us in Revelation 22, this stream will flow directly from the throne of God as his people are there with, with him in the new heavens and the new earth when he becomes fully present with his people. And so God will keep his people It says in verse 5, until the morning dawns, meaning God is going to be with his people all the way through, right? God's not going to leave you or forsake you. He's with you through this process until he fully returns. God is with his people constantly and continuously flowing through their midst. In verse 6, the psalmist then envisions something even worse than what he had uh, previously described uh, as he discusses tottering kingdoms and raging nations. Here the psalmist turns from the natural to the political, right, or to the man-made. If the earth gets ripped apart, God is with you, right? Death and destruction, tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, God is with you. But now if man does it too, God is still nonetheless with you. Political turmoil, national conflict, wars, rumors of wars, God is with you. He's showing a contrast between these two. After portraying uh, the uncertain and dangerous state of the world, whose nations are raging and being ripped apart, the psalmist immediately lists a statement about the power of God in the midst of such a trial. He talks about what God is capable of doing after setting the stage that even if the earth were to be ripped into two, even if the entire world was to be at war with one another, all that it takes is he utters his voice and the earth would melt. After setting the stage of the worst case scenarios on both sides, it says that all God need do is utter his voice open his mouth, and it all would melt away. It was through God opening his mouth that brought all things uh, in this universe into creation, and all it would take is him opening his mouth to melt it all away. This stark contrast is to clearly and boldly remind the reader that God is in complete and utter control at all times of the entire earth, both over the natural and over the man-made systems. The audience is reminded that the God who has brought them through all their recent troubles, the God who takes away fear when creation itself falls apart, the God who is above all nations and armies, only has but to speak a word, and the entire earth melt away. Nations with their armies may clash, the kingdoms of this world may totter, but peace reigns among the people of God, because the Lord Almighty is with us, and the God of Jacob is our fortress, verse 7. Next, in verse 8, the author then gives an invitation to his readers to come and behold the works of the Lord. The psalmist directly invites his audience to test the reliability of his statements by looking at the past actions of God. The people of God are directed to reflect on how God had destroyed their enemies time and time and time again, and how he has always been faithful to his promises. The author gives a rather graphic description of which the audience would likely have seen with their very eyes. The bow of the enemy being broken, laying on the floor. 
the spear of their adversaries lying shattered on the ground, and the chariots of their rivals being burned by the flame. The people were reminded to reflect on the desolation that God had brought upon their enemies, for it is God and God alone who is able to make war cease. Men start wars, but as started in verse 9, God ends them. Not just in Israel, but to the ends of the earth. What a great reminder for us. God is uh, in control of conflicts. Is he starting them and putting, no, of course not. For whatever reason, in his sovereign will, he allows them, church. For whatever reason God has allowed this current state of our world, we must trust in him. He knows what he's doing. It may think and look to us that he doesn't, but he does. And this is a reminder, God is in complete control of all of these details. Therefore, we should trust in him. So the call goes out to the people of God to acknowledge the complete and total control of their creator in all of of their circumstances. And what are the people of God told to do in response to the reality of God's complete and sovereign control of all things? It's important to note that there is a directive here, right? And if you're reading along in Psalm 46, you probably see what that directive is. Uh, There's uh, not much that's told for us to do, right? Saying, let God be God. God is in control. God is going to do what God is going to do. What are we to do? To be still and to know that He is God. To be still and to know that He is God. Not us, not anybody else. For He will be the one exalted among the nations, and He will be exalted among the earth. The Lord reigns now. The Lord will one day return to fully consummate His kingdom. That day is real. That day is coming. All the earth is His, and one day all kingdoms, all tongues, all tribes, all nations will be forced to bow before the Creator of the universe. And so the psalmist concludes with one final reminder. The Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Therefore, we, as the people of God, have nothing to fear. Brothers and sisters, in looking at Psalm 46 in detail, there are three points of application that I would like to present to you. Three brief points of application that I'd like to present to you. Number one, God is our protection, verses 1 through 3. God is our protection. Church, I'm a patriot. I assure you that I am. I believe in the foundations of this great country. I praise God for this country. I teach U.S. history as part of my profession. And I pray that by the grace of God, He will sustain this country. But America is not our protection, and America is not our salvation. A political party is not the solution. For God alone is the protection of the people of God. God is on His throne at this very moment, ruling and reigning through His sovereign and perfect will. All nations sit below His feet. And so we must remember that in this highly politicized and unstable world that we live in today, that we are citizens of heaven first and foremost. Citizens of heaven. For it is God who is our refuge, and God who is our strength, and God is not simply a refuge, the psalmist says. God is the refuge. He is the refuge for the people of God. God protects those who are His. We must look to Him for strength and protection, brothers and sisters. We must trust in Him during tumultuous times, for He is always near, always present, and always able to be found. And trouble will come. 
It will. In fact, I would say that trouble has come. But God is present, and God is with his people. He is here, and he is near, and he is able. Therefore, church, call upon him for protection during these times. Call upon him for solutions. Pray continually for the state of our world and the state of our country, for he is a very present help in times of trouble. There are things in life that make the ground literally feel like it's falling out from underneath us. I don't know all the circumstances. There's general ones that we share, but I don't know all of the personal circumstances. I don't know how you're interpreting all of these things. Maybe you just feel like that. Maybe you've just been so shaken by all the things that are going on, not knowing how to even respond to it. But when the ground is shaking and the waters are rising, even though your natural reaction is fear, the psalmist says, you are not be afraid. Do not fear. For he, the psalmist, is confident that our God is higher than the waters and stronger than the mountains. He is our ever-present refuge. So let us rest. Let us find peace and comfort and stability and tranquility in the hands of our great God. Point number two, God is with us. God is with us. Building upon and intimately connected to the first point is the second point. God is with us. God protects us. And God is with us. It's only logical that if God is protecting us, point one, then he must also be with us in order to do that. Interestingly, the psalmist describes a city that is both in danger of attack while at the same time filled with gladness. It's the already but not yet principle, right? It's under attack. People are coming in, but we're very calm. God is with us. Things are falling out of control, but God is very much in control. There's so much to be afraid of, yet we should not fear, right? We have to understand that principle in the scriptures. The city remains calm in the face of danger because of God's presence with them, being described as a river of gladness. And his promised protection is with his people. It's an image of the already but not yet, but the reality is that the turmoil is very present with his people. It's very present with us. Yet God, at the same time, is fully present with us. Though the enemies will come, God will fight on behalf of his people, and he can defeat them using only a word, only a word. In the state of our world today, church, are we responding in the same way that the psalmist and his audience did in times of turmoil and tribulation? Are we calm because we know that God is our protector? Are we confident because we know that God is present with us? Brothers and sisters, I want you to take a moment and analyze how you are responding to the challenges that we're facing today the general ones that we all know, the challenges abroad, how are you responding to these things? Because this psalm is telling you how to respond. Are you responding being lost in your fear, not being able to even think clearly through them? Or are you saying, there's much to be afraid of, and and I'm a bit apprehensive, but I trust in the Lord. Look to what the psalmist says and a solution for that, because Psalm 46 is a direct call for the people of God to remain confident and encouraged in times of worldwide uncertainty and national political unrest. God is the one in control, and God is present with His people. All that God needs to do is just speak to utter His voice, and every nation around us would crumble to the ground. So be reminded, God is in control. God is your protection. God is present with us. He is present with you. And it is His presence and power 
that should bring us hope and bring us peace. The Lord of hosts, the powerful leader of armies of angels on high, Scripture says, is with us. And the God of Jacob, the merciful and covenant and always faithful God, is our fortress. Brothers and sisters, rest in the presence of God with you, for he is truly with us. Point number three, and lastly, also building upon points number one and and number two, is that God reigns now and will be exalted in all the earth. God reigns now and will be exalted in all the earth. He's on his throne now. He will be on his throne in the future. He's on his throne now. He will fully consummate all things one day. God reigns now from his throne, and God will reign physically present here on the earth in the future. The final section of Psalm 46 describes how God will come and judge the wicked and fully establish his eternal kingdom. But God will not come in judgment in order to bring more chaos. Instead, his judgment will be a means of establishing eternal peace. For God will one day bring desolation, bring judgment, and disarm all of his enemies. Surely that day will come. And so we as the church are called to be faithful as we patiently await the timing of God. The psalm tells us that the world will be in disarray with wars, conflict, and toppling kingdoms, but God is in complete control. Therefore, we as the people of God are given a very clear and direct commandment in light of this knowledge. We are to be still. We are to stop, surrender, relinquish control, stop saying that we would do it differently, and trust and rest in God's perfect will and know that He is God. Jesus is the one who will come as the ultimate judge and the ultimate peacemaker and the one who will be exalted over all. While this psalm was written before the coming of Christ, we know that much of God's work has and will be accomplished through Christ. Ultimately, God breaks the bow and shatters the spear of our enemies. The work of Jesus on the cross, Jesus is the one who has been highly exalted over every nation. While we currently still live in a fallen world, one day Jesus will come in judgment and bring peace and restoration back to his creation. So, brothers and sisters, be bold in Christ. Proclaim his name. Share with him, with those around you, that people would be added to the flock of God. For God is your protection. God is with you. God reigns now and forevermore. Worship him. Praise him. Adore him. Look upon him during these times for patience, protection, and peace. In conclusion, complete peace will never be fully actualized on this side of eternity. Only Christ is perfect, and only in Christ will there be perfect peace. We need to remember that. No government, no political system is going to fix the sin that was brought into the world so many years ago. Only Christ can and will and has done that. So our hope and our focus should always be on Christ. His protecting presence with us now and His complete presence with us when He returns. I'd like to close today by once again reading the very words of Christ to His disciples on the night of His crucifixion. Reading from Matthew 15, 18-20 and 16, 32-33. I want you to pay careful attention to these words as I close, church. This is just the last piece that I have for you and I'm going to go back to finishing reading God's most holy words, so please give your undivided attention to it. 
because these are the words given by our Savior, and they are some of the last words that he gave just prior to his death, burial, and resurrection. And this is what he has to say. Verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we are again so blessed and comforted by your scriptures, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we would be immersed in your word, Father, that we would continually read, that we would think upon, that would we would review all of your word, Lord, but especially scriptures like this, Lord. Scriptures like Matthew 15 and Psalm 46, Lord. There's so much encouragement there for us, Lord. I pray that your people are encouraged. I pray that their hearts are strengthened, Lord. I pray that your church expands, Lord. I pray that your kingdom would continue to expand, Lord. I pray that hearts are renewed, Lord, through hearing this. And I pray that they would uh, continue to go forward. All of your people would go forward, Lord, in the boldness of you, sharing, Lord, uh, with those around them, Lord, in the time of uncertainty and disarray, Lord, that people would wonder why they're so confident and calm, Lord, why they're yet still so gentle, even though um, they, uh, the opposing side may not be, Lord. May we win others to you, Lord, through the gentleness that Christ has displayed to us, the patience that Christ displayed uh, to even our very selves, Lord. Bless the people, Lord. Bless your people now. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. All God's people said, Amen.